Hello, and welcome to the Allen and Overeys podcast. I'm Dario DiMartino, an M&A partner with a focus on tech and life sciences in our New York office. In this episode, part of our global M&A talk series, we'll dissect key tech M&A trends of 2023 and forecast our expectations for 2024. I'm very pleased to be speaking today with my colleagues, Kuang Xiang, Senior Counsel and CFUS Expert in our DC office, Pooja Patel, Senior Associate and Antitrust Expert in our New York office, and Mara Goodman, Associate and member of our M&A group in our New York office. It shouldn't be a surprise to market participants that tech M&A and M&A overall witnessed a slowdown in 2023. We saw significant macroeconomic headwinds, including rising interest rates and inflation, geopolitical conflicts, fear of a recession, a slowing demand for digitalization, and increased regulatory scrutiny. Last but not least, we often noted valuation discrepancies between buyers and sellers, and that is a key issue that we expect to continue seeing in 2024. This disparity in pricing expectations and the readiness of sellers to agree to the valuations proposed by prospective buyers was a significant barrier to completing transactions in 2023. But in some cases, we were able to breach that gap through the use of earnouts. Let me go to our m and associate, Mara Goodman. Mara, you and I led several tech m and transactions that successfully closed in 2023, where the use of earnout was critical in getting the deal done. Can you delve into earnouts in terms of earnouts gaining ground in tech deal making and the way they were commonly structured in 2023? Thanks, Dario. So in general, we're seeing an increase in the use of earnout structures in tech M&A and across industries. Tech acquirers have been negotiating earnout provisions into their deal structures as the economic uncertainty that you mentioned created differences in price expectations and insecurity about how a business may perform after closing. But it's not just tech. There are certain industries that have traditionally favored earnout structures, particularly within the life sciences the prevalence of earnouts is significantly higher than other industries. For instance, from mid-2021 to mid-2023, around 65% of private target transactions in the life sciences included an earnout structure. By contrast, for the same period, just over 20% of private target transactions outside of the life sciences included earnouts. Also, earnout structures within the life sciences typically use milestone targets while a significant majority of earnout structures outside of the life sciences use revenue, earnings, EBITDA, targets, or a combination of these. Dario, as you'll remember, we recently worked on a sell-side crypto deal that involved a mix of cash and stock consideration and included a complex earnout with revenue targets. In that deal, the buyer will make additional cash payments to the seller if the target company meets certain net revenue thresholds six months and a year out from closing, and will also issue additional stock to the seller based on the retention of transferring employees between the first and third year after closing. And just as a final comment on earnout duration, most earnout periods tend to be between one and three years. We're seeing longer performance periods for earnouts recently, and this isn't surprising and likely reflects uncertainty regarding the market's ability to recover in the short term. Thanks, Mara. That's very insightful. So earnouts can be helpful, but there's also a potential downside. Uh, and that's because earnout 
tend to be complex. If not properly structured and skillfully drafted, they may result in post-closing disputes, which can involve burdensome, costly, and time-consuming litigation. Tellingly, the increase in the use of earnouts in recent years has been accompanied by a wave of related litigation. So, Mara, what are some of the ways in which dealmakers can reduce the risk of post-closing disputes around earnouts? So, most importantly, earnout provision should be drafted clearly and to the greatest extent possible simply. They should use objective and easily measurable targets. For greater clarity, it may also be helpful to include illustrative examples of how the earnouts are to be calculated within the purchase agreement. Also, parties should consider whether to require that any earnout-related disputes be arbitrated, as opposed to allowing fights in court. Arbitration usually brings faster results with far less expense. On top of that, the parties can define and frame the scope of what and how disputes may be arbitrated, and even frame the issues for the arbitrator in the purchase agreement in advance. That's very helpful, Mara. Thank you. Could you also give us some examples of terms for an arbitration clause concerning or now disputes? Definitely. The arbitration clause can, for example, require the parties retain an accountant to act as arbitrator and resolve disputes, including how the accountant is to be selected. It can limit the scope of any dispute over an earnout to such a calculation or allow the arbitrator to consider other issues. And it can provide a method for calculation for payment in disputes for the arbitrator. And as a last piece of advice, it also is helpful for the parties to document and keep clear records of their intentions and understanding of the earnout provisions. Under some circumstances, these records can be introduced in litigation as extrinsic evidence of the party's understanding. Great. Thanks, Mara. Uh, but despite this pretty challenging market, tech m remained a vital part of tech companies' growth strategy. Lots of tech deals signed and closed, and there's reason to believe that M&A activity will increase in 2024, especially with expectations of interest rate reductions and recessionary fears subsiding. Importantly, most tech buyers have remained overall optimistic, resilient, and continue to look at synergistic transactions, mostly focus on artificial intelligence, machine learning, cybersecurity, Web3, and of course, enterprise software. Mara, why don't you tell us a little bit about what we expect to see in terms of key drivers for tech m this year? So over the past few years, blockchain and distributed ledger technologies have been key drivers of tech m and As you mentioned, Web3 remains a top priority of companies, and there is still a significant amount of m and in this space, particularly with respect to infrastructure as companies look to address scaling issues. And while we expect these technologies to continue to develop and drive M&A into 2024, the buzz has been largely around AI over the past year, especially generative AI, which is AI that is capable of creating new content, including text, audio, and video. The technology is really changing the way that we do business, the way that we learn, and the way that we work. For instance, experts are predicting that almost all enterprise software companies will incorporate generative AI into some of their products in the next year. Businesses are distinguishing themselves in the market by how well they use AI. Within the fintech industry, investments in AI are projected to reach around $31 billion by 2027. Generative AI is being used within the industry to monitor transactions for fraud risk and compliance and to enhance the customer experience, as well as to strengthen cybersecurity. 
We also expect AI applications in the life sciences to drive significant deal activity in 2024. Among other things, companies are exploring the use of AI to provide faster and more accurate diagnoses, create personalized treatment plans, and develop new drugs. In addition to AI, we expect the demand for new technologies relating to cybersecurity to drive tech M&A, as you mentioned. Due to the dramatic growth in the use of certain technologies like AI, cybersecurity has become an increasingly important area of focus for companies. Companies are looking to prioritize safety as cyber attacks are increasing and getting more sophisticated and privacy regulations are becoming more robust in key jurisdictions. And just as a final note, there are also important synergies, again, as you mentioned, among new technologies being explored. For example, some companies are exploring the ways in which blockchain technology can be used to track what data an AI algorithm was trained on, when it was trained, and by whom, and what steps were taken to verify that data. We expect synergies like these to be strong drivers of M&A activity into 2024. Very interesting. Thanks, Mara. As I mentioned earlier, we've witnessed increased regulatory scrutiny in 2023. U.S. antitrust authorities continue to pursue an aggressive merger enforcement agenda, a trend likely posed to continue in 2024, including releasing new draft merger guidelines and proposed changes to the HSR Act notification requirements that threaten to make dealmaking more burdensome. And although these rigorous investigations and enforcement measures haven't typically halted deals, they have considerably extended the overall timeline of deals. And this delay is particularly consequential in the tech and life sciences industries where the speed of transaction execution is crucial for value realization. And as we mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, increased antitrust scrutiny is one of the reasons that contributed to the decline in tech company transactions this year, even if several of the FTC's high-profile challenges have been unsuccessful. But this environment has led to greater focus on regulatory risk-sharing and related contractual provisions. Think drop debt dates, reverse termination fees, and best effort covenants. So let me go to our antitrust expert, Pooja Patel. Pooja, how has M&A antitrust enforcement changed since President Biden has been elected? Well, Dario, let me start by saying that it is a great time to be an antitrust lawyer these days because we are seeing the most aggressive Federal Trade Commission and Department of Justice that we've seen in decades. So since President Biden was elected, he put in place two leaders at the top of the two antitrust agencies in the U.S., Lena Khan for the FTC and Jonathan Cantor for the DOJ. And both of these leaders have been very vocal and aggressive about wanting to go after more and more deals, particularly in the tech industry. And instead of negotiating remedies with parties, so this is the situation where the agencies will say, you know, we'll let your deal proceed so long as you divest this business, which is the source of the competitive overlap. Instead of going with the remedies route, agencies are just electing to sue to block the entire deal in court. And the numbers really show here. So in 2023, the regulators agreed to just four remedies compared to the normal 20 or so that we've seen in prior administrations. Meanwhile, this year they sued to block four deals. And last year that number was 10. And this is compared to the normal, you know, two to three deals that we see typically blocked each year. So there has been a real shift away from negotiating remedies 
to opting for pure litigation by both agencies. Very, very interesting and threatening. Um, should we expect any more changes in the near future? Yes, I'm afraid it's only going to get more challenging for dealmakers and more interesting for us antitrust lawyers because last summer the agencies announced some pretty transformative changes to how U.S. merger review will be done in the U.S. First, there were the changes to the merger guidelines. So this is the framework that the agencies use to evaluate mergers. And what the DOJ and FTC have done in their revisions is that they've said that a merger is presumptively illegal if it results in a combined market share of 30% or more. They've also added some new theories of harm, such as around roll-up deals and labor markets. And so what does this all mean? Well, these guidelines will just give the agencies more openings, more avenues, opportunities to open up investigations into transactions. But what I think are even the more significant set of changes that have come from the agencies are the changes to the Hart-Scott-Rudino filing. So that's the main merger filing here in the U.S. What these changes do is effectively they convert the filing from a simple formulaic document to a much more robust, heavily lawyered advocacy submission, similar to what we see in the U.K. and the E.C. You'll remember that, Dario, from the deals we've done together where there was a U.S. filing and a U.K. filing. There will be you know, more business documents that need to be submitted, more information, more advocacy around the competitive effects of the deal. And by the FTC's own estimates, they think that these changes will at least triple the workload required on any given filing. Just to give you an idea of how momentous these changes are, this is the first time that agencies have revamped the filing since they enacted the HSR Act back in 1972. So... If you were to sort of sum this up, how do you think these changes will impact dealmakers? It's going to impact dealmakers in a few respects. First, in terms of timing, these changes mean that parties will need more time to prepare the HSR filing than before. Dario, you'll remember, you know, typically in our usual deals where an HSR filing is required, we only need about one or two weeks to prepare the filing on average. But these changes will add several more weeks to the process. Dealmakers should start thinking that whatever time they allow for in the UK and EC, that's the time they should now allow for in the US. There's also going to be more expense, both in terms of internal and external resources, more lawyer time needed to prepare the filing, and more resource needed at companies to help them compile the greater information and documents that are now required from the filing. So when do you think these changes will take place? And is there anything that dealmakers can do to begin to prepare? Yeah, so the merger filings, those were finalized last month. So those have already gone into place. The HSR changes are still pending. So after the agencies published their draft changes, there was a public comment period where interested parties could submit comments in support of or in opposition to the changes and ways the regulators could maybe change the edits to the filing. The agencies actually received over 700 comments and they're currently in digestion mode. And the latest intel in the market suggests that the HSR changes will be finalized sometime in Q2 or Q3 of this year, but nothing is definitive yet. In terms of what parties can do to prepare, you know, we've done this for a number of our clients. Companies should think about having their outside lawyers train them, help them get up to speed on what exactly is the scope of these changes so they can be ready when they come into law. Another thing to think about is if you're thinking about doing a deal, especially if it's a deal with no or little risk in U.S. antitrust, 
then you should consider expediting it so you can, you know, still fall within the current HSR regime. Because once these changes come into place, even if your deal doesn't have much hair, it will be a much higher burden to complete the HSR than what we have today. Thank you, Pooja. One last question for you. Uh, you know, 2024 will be the biggest election year in history with more than half the world's population, over 4 billion people voting this year. And in most democratic countries, such as the US, elections may cause a substantial change in policy. What are your thoughts on this topic? What would happen if the US elected a Republican president next term? Would all these antitrust changes that you just discussed go away? You know, this is a question I get a lot. And so on the merger guidelines, I think these may be more ripe for revision based on the administration. You know, the last set of changes was just 15 years ago to the merger guidelines, and they're not law. They're just a set of guidelines that the regulators use to evaluate deals. Courts by no means are under any sort of obligation to follow them. But the HSR filing changes are here to stay because I think both sides of the aisle can agree that the filing was very outdated and needed an overhaul. I don't think this is a political issue because both sides of the aisle will agree that they can benefit for more information and more documents. So the HSR filing changes, which I think are the more transformative changes between the two, those are here to say, regardless of who is in the office in the White House next year. Got it. Thank you, Pooja. And of course, we can't have a podcast about tech M&A without talking about cross-border M&A. In 2023, cross-border deals represented some 33%, that's almost $1 trillion of global M&A, and acquisitions of U.S. companies by non-U.S. buyers total about $165 billion, or about 6% of global M&A. And this is in part due to geopolitical tensions and tighter investment regulations. For example, we haven't seen many Chinese companies making acquisitions in the U.S., and at the same time, we haven't seen many U.S. companies making acquisitions or investments in China. Despite this decline compared to 2022, there's a sense of optimism for 2024. Uh, market volatility might present opportunities for acquiring quality international assets at lower costs, particularly mid-cap and small-cap sectors. Additionally, cross-border M&A is seen as a tool for achieving cost efficiencies and overcoming inflationary and interest rate challenges. And while Chinese companies are not being very active in the U.S., we continue to see more Japanese buyers of U.S. tech companies, as well as more U.S. companies going into Japan, possibly to reposition their investments from China. And there's a perfect segue into CPUs. In 2023, the U.S. intensified its scrutiny of investments for national security issues, especially targeting transactions from China and Russia and those involving emerging technologies. So let me go to our CFIUS expert, Guang Qiang. Guang, can you tell us a little bit about these changes that we've seen during this presidential administration? Thanks, Dario. So as a headline, I would not say that the regulations have changed or the policy has changed. I would say that the scrutiny of the inbound investment has become only more intense, but I wouldn't say that's a change from the prior administration. There was a regulatory regime change in the prior administration to introduce a mandatory filing requirement, and the current administration has continued to implement it, and our experience certainly has been 
that the regulators are eyeing inbound investments from all non-U.S. countries very closely. What's notable about the new law is that the CFIUS analysis now relies heavily on an export controls analysis. Whether you have a mandatory CFIUS filing, for example, will key off directly from whether your U.S. target business makes, develops, manufactures, tests, etc., what's called a critical technology. And the way that critical technology is defined is very much on whether the underlying technology requires export control authorization. So now what you have is a very linked up analysis between the CFIUS decision-making and export regulations. The current administration arguably has only intensified the export control analysis because it has expanded the reach of U.S. export controls jurisdiction. For example, the October 7th export controls, that's what we call them. That was October 7th, 2022, expanding controls over semiconductor equipment, advanced computing. That rule was expanded even further or clarified just in 2023 to have a real impact on supply chain and semiconductor clients and and industry in general. I will say that sanctions on Russia have also complicated the M&A landscape. You know, their prohibition against new investment in Russia, that complicates existing investments in Russia, expansion of operation. The identification of new sanctions targets also presents challenges with respect to financing and existing investments and relationships. Uh, Something else that we should say that is not necessarily related to this presidential administration per se, we see globally that there are now foreign direct investment regimes in many more jurisdictions outside the United States. So when you have a cross-border transaction, you're not only looking at CFIUS anymore. Maybe four or five years ago, it was CFIUS that you would have to look at, and that was it. But now when you have a multi-jurisdictional transaction, you are looking at an array of different foreign direct investment regimes, and that can require a lot of coordination. And then something else, back to the United States, that is a change in the Biden administration, is the signing of a new executive order signed in August of 2023, authorizing the Treasury Department to implement new regulations that scrutinize outbound investment from the United States. This will outright prohibit certain investments in certain industries, mostly related to tech, in countries of concern is the phrase. And right now, that country of concern is defined as China and Hong Kong and Macau. Thank you, Kwong. And how do you think these changes will affect dealmakers? Well, at the very least, it's going to require a lot of coordination across jurisdictions, reading in your non-U.S. colleagues across your different countries. There will be an increased diligence burden. There is an increased expectation of familiarity with the rules. And this can be challenging for U.S. targets that may have attractive businesses, for example, tech or software. But if these U.S. targets have never had to consider, for example, whether their business is subject to U.S. export controls, that can be a challenge in the beginning. And so from the deal perspective, the real takeaway is to loop in your regulatory 
colleagues early to smoke out these issues ahead of time so you're well prepared for when the transaction is actually going to be underway. Another example of how these changes can affect dealmakers is that intra-group transfers may also be affected. I recently worked on a transaction, for example, where but for the insertion of a tax entity in the UK, the transaction would not have been subject to CFIUS jurisdiction at all. But for that tax entity, the CFIUS filing wouldn't have had to be made. So there is real attention that has to be paid to what the rules require and how your deal is structured. We're also seeing longer periods between signing and closing, given the many regulatory burdens and the regulatory filings that have to be coordinated across jurisdictions. So let me ask you the same question that I asked Pooja earlier. What happens if we have Republican president next term? Would any of these issues that you just mentioned change or go away? I would not expect changes to go away. Similar to how this Democratic administration is not change the prior administration's approach, I would not expect a relaxation of these rules if there were a Republican in the White House next year. National security scrutiny of inbound investment seems to be an issue that both sides of the aisle can agree upon. Well, Kwong, Puja, Mara, thank you very much for your insights today. For tech dealmakers seeking to drive growth, create synergies, monetize non-core assets and business lines or enter new markets, M&A may be the answer, but only thoughtful, creative, and resilient dealmakers who employ expert deal analysis and proper structuring, execution, and integration will achieve the desired results. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Ellen Overy's podcast. If you'd like to learn more, be sure to visit www.ellenovery.com slash M&A where you'll find all of our M&A related content. Thanks again for listening.